Good morning, everybody. Thank you all for being here. Um, this is our last day together. Uh, it's been a good semester, and thank you for being a part of the class. I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure Roger has as well. Um, it's, it's good to be aware. It's good to know what's going on in our world. It's good to know how um, Christ's people can think and act on, on these things around us. And so I hope that you have um, felt a sense of, oops, I lost my, I wanted to show you one more time, one last time, our goals for this class. Hopefully you've had um, a heightened or a raised sense of awareness. You know, I've learned so much about what's happening, not only in Syria, but really around the world when it comes to the refugee crisis and the many people that have been displaced because of wars and conflict and um, unrest around our world. And of course, I hope that we've uh, had some invigorated sense of compassion. There's just so much need and so much hurt, Um, and it can be overwhelming. And so what we've tried to do is take the conversation out of the abstract because these, the numbers are so staggering and, and the story seems so far off and so far removed from what we experience in our culture and in our peaceful nation, uh, relatively speaking, that uh, it can be very easy to kind of keep it over there in this abstract realm. And so hopefully as we bring it a little closer to home and talk about Nashville and talk about families that we're working with and you've gotten to hear from Siloam Health Clinic and you've gotten to hear from a couple of different refugee folks, um, hopefully that, that um, raises our sense of compassion, you know, just to understand these are people like you and I who have families, who have needs, they have children that they care uh, supremely about. And, um, and, and one thing I know that has struck me the most is just how concerned these families are for their children's education. And that, that's something that all of us can relate to uh, in, in the Nashville culture. We all care about our children's education. And so uh, things like that are just things that have, have stuck out to me over the course of this, um, this class together. Um, we've done some training. Hopefully you feel a little bit more prepared to meet needs here in Nashville. We've presented some opportunities and we've talked about how to serve and where to serve. And we've talked a lot about World Relief, which is an amazing organization. Um, Gail just spoke of, uh, is it your son? In Texas, who's working with a family and with another organization. Things don't seem to be going so well. And of course, a big part of that might be just, uh, just a function of being overwhelmed as an agency. And that happens to the best of them. But I'm really proud of what Rural Relief is doing here in Nashville. They're, they're uh, not perfect, but they've got some amazing things happening and they have a great system. And it's an organization I think we can relate to uh, as um, Middle Tennessee disciples trying to serve. Uh, they care about souls and they care about people uh, in, in a Christian sense, in a, in a biblical sense, and want to see them um, experience love and peace and faith as we do in Christ. So anyway, uh, we hope that you feel more prepared. And then finally, uh, with these opportunities, we hope you're mobilized. We hope that you'll do something. We hope that out of this class, there's 20 or 30 more folks in Nashville, at Arter Creek specifically, that are equipped and that can go do some things and make a difference in lives of families. Um, it is best to start right here because if you if you follow the numbers and you think of you think in global terms, there can be this paralysis. You know, you're just not sure where to start, where to jump in. But let's break it down to right down the street here at Stonebrook Apartments. There's uh, this whole population of refugees uh, that need help, that need bedding, that need um, 
diapers that need food. And we can do that. You know, we can do that. We can start there. And as we develop those relationships, I think our, our vision and our capacity for help can grow And uh, as we get our heads around this crisis. It's really something that we haven't seen since uh, the Second World War, World War in terms of humanitarian aid and, and people's displaced. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, the proportion is really uh, uh, just staggering. So a quick review, very quick. Um, we have, you know, tried to see this through a biblical lens and understand how important welcoming the stranger is to uh, kingdom people. And so this Matthew 25 has been a bit of an anchor for us. Uh, I love the way it's phrased here. It says, come that uh, you that are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he goes on to really give what are markers of kingdom people. You saw someone that was hungry, you fed them. You saw someone that was thirsty and you gave them drink. And of course here, um, you welcome the stranger. And so this is, this is a principal marker of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's our, it's our DNA and it's who we are. So we've tried to uh, uh, use that really as our, our vantage point for, for uh, welcoming people who are from other places that are joining us here in Nashville. These are strangers. They don't know, most of them don't know our language or don't know it well. They're unfamiliar with all their surroundings. They're coming out of unrest or, you know, situations that were not peaceful. So many uh, resemblances to Luke 10 and the Good Samaritan and this, this man who was beaten on the side of the road and sort of neglected and left. Um, and that, that was one of my favorite weeks in this class. And I think back to some of the comments that the Bennies had and Mike and some of you. Um, just a, an amazing discussion when you really talk about um, the story that Jesus shared. And, um, and really the, the bottom line there, he says, go and do the same thing. I want you, to, as my followers, to do the same thing. These are your neighbors. These are, these are people to care about. Um, we've tried to point you to some resources. If you haven't checked these out, love for you to to um, get a hold of them after this class, but um, you'll see Matthew Sorens is the common thread here, but this is the chief executive officer, I guess would be his title of World Relief um, nationally. And he's co-author in both of these books, and it's a fantastic um, overview of the crisis and uh, particularly how the church could view it and, and should act uh, in, in light of the crisis. So really, um, have proven to be great resources for our class. Uh, Roger helped um, come up with this diagram, and I think it's really, really critical to understand. Um, maybe not so much uh, as as Christ followers, but as Americans. Okay, so here's the issue: you're going to enter into the discussion on immigration uh, in your in your circles of influence, right? Um, as Christians, we feel and understand the mandate of love that's issued in Matthew 25 and Luke 10, the story of the Good Samaritan. And we want to respond to people because they're people and they're made in the image of God, right? Um, and so let alone or set aside the many politics surrounding immigration policy in America, that, that's a worthy discussion, but it's not necessarily one that is uh, central to our discussion as Christ followers. As Christ followers, we hope that Matthew 25 and Luke 10 are the catalyst to caring and compassion and reaching out to people who might be strangers in our community. But what, what this diagram and much of our discussion has 
been is it's a way to approach the discussion with folks who may not necessarily be Christ followers, who, who are working to change policy in, in Nashville or the, the U.S. And so this is really helpful in categorizing the discussion and breaking down the discussion so that it makes sense. Um, the, the discussion of immigration policy in America is very complicated, and we've, we've seen that in the recent election. We've seen it in, in our daily walk. We understand it's a really complicated policy from a, from a nation-state standpoint. But what makes this discussion about refugees so easy, even outside of Christ, is that we're talking about legal immigrants, right? These are people who are documented, who, who by um, decree of the United Nations have, have received this status. It's a legal status. The term refugee is a legal status. And so, I, to me, it changes the conversation entirely uh, to go from illegal immigrants, which you might have your opinions on that and, and you might have views on that, but, but we're talking about legal immigrants. We're talking about documented people who have been placed here by our federal government in conjunction with resettling agencies, right? So that, that changes the dynamics. If you go and uh, begin helping refugees in your community and you receive criticism from your neighbor, it's so much easier to explain to them in terms of, hey, but let's understand these are, these are legal immigrants. These are people that are documented and are part of our federal program. Full-fledged, yeah. So, but kids that are brought over are immigrants. Correct. So in a family, you could have some kids who are immigrants and some kids who are citizens. Naturalized, correct. Yeah. So um, I appreciate this diagram. It does clarify the conversation, and it can be really, it can be a hairy conversation. Immigration policy, I, I give, I would grant that is, is a very tricky uh, conversation. But this does simplify it to some degree uh, when we understand and sort of break apart the conversation, understand that we're talking about people who have been resettled here uh, in partnership with our federal government. Um, the process uh, is so tedious, and we try not to, to uh, you know, get too far down into the weeds, but suffice it to say it's a tedious, long, uh, very uh, vetted process, right? So folks are coming, uh, once they achieve the status of refugee, once that is granted on an international basis, there are many, many, many steps, not only to be resettled in any country, but certainly to be resettled here in the U.S. And the U.S. obviously has its whole, a whole other layer of, of um, filters. And so less than 1% of the refugees worldwide are being resettled here in the U.S., and so um, I encourage you not to really buy into the propaganda that, that says there's just these droves of, of people being dumped into our country. It's really just not true. Um, it's a very select, very vetted, small group of individuals that are being placed here and resettled very strategically um, by our government. So there's uh, just waves of interviews and background checks and medical uh, screenings and so forth just to be here. Um, many, many agencies, all of our intelligence agencies and other services inside the federal government are, are having their share of time with this individual or family. 
Um, and so many, many checks, many processes. And then once they are uh, connected to a resettling agency like World Relief, they are then um, sort of routed to a city and, uh, and World Relief helps them with cultural orientation and uh, financial assistance and the many programs that are provided by the government uh, to get them all the way to a place like Nashville. Once they come to Nashville, they're received at airport and Gail and I just spoke, they're, they're, they receive a culturally, culturally relevant meal and are placed into hopefully an apartment or at least an extended stay, some sort of temporary housing. And the goal for that resettling agency is self-sufficiency within six to eight months. Okay, so they're, they're um, and that system is quick, right? I mean, you can, can you imagine going to another country, potentially with the language barrier, and making it to employment and a car and a house and schools, all that in six to eight months? I mean, it's a breakneck pace. But you can imagine how, how taxing it is to get families set up in that amount of time, that short amount of time. And they are given uh, $2,000 per person. Um, and I don't remember if that's through the UN or the U.S. It's the United States. The United States. But that's a loan. That is a loan. They, they have agreed to pay back that 2000 It's a 0% interest mm -hmm. loan over 10 years. But, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's not a lot of money for which to get your family started on. Yeah. Um, very naturally, there are fears in all of us that arise when we consider strangers, right? And we've tried to be careful not to invalidate any of those fears. And I hope that you, you haven't heard that from us. These are natural, they're, they're understandable, and what we've tried to do is work through those um, natural tendencies. Um, we took a couple of weeks on this, and so these are the top four that seem to kind of bubble to the surface, and I'm sure there's others. Obviously, our world is dealing with an element of terror and terrorism, um, and so there is this subconscious fear of, oh no, what if we allow people to come here who hurt us from the inside? Um, and I'm not going to go back into the many details that we covered, but do research, avoid propaganda, and understand that, yes, there are risks, but wow, this process that is in place is, is built by way of our intelligence agencies to, to, to filter out those fears and those dangers. And, and that's just the reality of it. Um, economic uh, concerns have been around for centuries, right? That's nothing new. And we've had immigrant workers and, um, and migrant workers for, for centuries. And so we understand that there are considerations there. Uh, Lisa Sherman Nicholas, through her agency at Turk, provided uh, a document that's really important. If you were able to get a hold of that um, through our class emails, definitely understand it, pass it on to other people. But Tennessee actually uh, produces a very long uh, detailed document on the contributions of immigrants to the state of Tennessee. And it's just millions and millions of dollars that, that are put into our economy because of immigrants here in, here in Tennessee. So understand the facts and look at the numbers and. And, and wrestle with their, their economic contribution is actually far outweighs the, um, the economic strain. Uh, xenophobia in general, of course, is, is a very natural tendency to be afraid of people that aren't like us, to be afraid of strangers, uh, to be afraid of the unknown. And so those are things that we can combat not only with um, our, our view of Scripture and our understanding of Scripture and our practice of Scripture, but, but even through... Um, through just building relationships, just sort of stepping outside of, of what we know and getting to know families. And, and a lot of times those fears can be subsided 
or curbed by, by just putting a name to a face, right? Uh, and then Islam, you know, we've seen sort of the fear tactics that have been um, sort of brought into the American culture and, and we can, here again, it's just a fear of something other and we can, we can learn so much about Islam and we can learn so much about people who practice Islam uh, at a very close distance and just put names with faces and understand that there's uh, a lot of propaganda surrounding um, Islam in our country, unfortunately. Um, th this was one quick stat uh, that I wanted to share. It was sort of an example of how if we dive into the facts, we can understand that a lot of these fears would subside if we just knew the numbers, if we just put our heads around what's really happening. And so this is a stat from the Middle East is the, the critical title. Um, this is the number admitted in the last 10 year period. So there's really not, we're not talking about a large volume of people, number one, and they are not um, young war age men that are coming. It's generally uh, largely women and children under 14. And so this kind of breaks a lot of the stereotypes surrounding um, a, a lot of these fears or the, the stereotypes that are promoting these fears. 50% um, Muslim, but you see there are a high percentage of Christian folks. And there was another stat we shared that if you look at out of all of the uh, immigrants, uh, uh, sorry, refugees that are coming to America, uh, the majority were Christian. 200, some 290,000 versus 170-some thousand um, Christian to Muslim ratio that are coming over the last 10-year period. So it's good to have uh, a, an understanding of the actual numbers. Here's the, the document that I referred to that Lisa provided, really helpful understanding um, the contributions of immigrants. Uh, I think this is close to last, and I want Roger to lead us in some, some closing discussion. Um, this is a, a quote from Matthew Sorens that we have used a good bit um, this semester, and, it, and it's, it's perfect for bringing the discussion back to us, Christ followers, that yes, there's all these fears. There's all these things that could go wrong. There is risk, but wel welcome to Christianity, right? I mean, th this is the cost, and this is sort of the, the risk that we take every day by representing somebody who was killed. Right? Who, who was viewed as a problem. Um, this last line here is that there may be a risk or cost involved is not relevant to the mandate of love. And so I really encourage us to separate the conversations. There's conversations you can have with fellow Christ followers, and there's conversations that you can have with people who, uh, who, who identify more as Americans than they do as Christ followers. Does that make sense? Two, two different conversations. A lot of tangled overlap there that, that we're called to distill and separate, not only in, in the issue of refugees and immigration, right, in, in many social issues. Um, the good news, there's so much good news. Um, despite what you hear, there are hundreds of churches doing what we're doing that are responding well, that are welcoming refugees in their cities, that are developing ministries and outreach efforts that are are welcoming families and, and um, immigrant, immigrants into our cult, into our communities. This was an article that Roger shared, um, and this is back in uh, October. So I'm sure the numbers continue to grow as awareness is is raised. Uh, but I'm really proud of Outer Creek um, in terms of the response that we've seen. There's there's a planning team now that has has orchestrated some events, and we'll continue to do that in 2017. We have two good neighbor teams that we've established, and that's essentially kind of an adopt-a-family sort of program that I hope many of you will consider. 
um, you partner with other families. So it's not that you're just taking on a huge commitment, you, you yourself, or just your family. So my team, for instance, is um, about four different families are represented. Two different families are represented there. So we've adap adopted a family from Iraq and one from Syria. And then that, that's just one thing, right? Susan's a part of other organizations that help with refugees. And we have our own Laura Camp who works at Siloam. And we, we've heard from Mike who's hosted a, a family in his home. So this is not new to Otter Creek, right? There's been people that have been working in this area for, for a long time. Uh, and so what we're trying to do now is just uh, kind of spin that flywheel and get some more energy behind it in light of the, the recent Syrian crisis. So thank you for your response and, and your interest in this class. Uh, I want to share some pictures. Um, this, th this is another reason I love my, my new job here at Otter Creek, but the Lipscomb girls basketball team calls me and says, we want to serve. You know how sports teams at this time of year want to help their community. It's an awesome thing. So these two guys on the far right are the coaches of the uh, varsity and junior varsity girls basketball team at Lipscomb, and they say, how can we serve? And I say, I've got a great family that you need to meet. And so I introduce them to my family from Iraq, and we take them over to their apartment, and they have some Christmas gifts for them. Um, and just spend some time together. Of course, I wish you could have seen the hospitality that they extended to us, right? We're trying to bless them for Christmas. And they had this amazing spread of food, um, Iraqi food that they prepared for us that was out of this world. And all 18 of these girls got to spend some time with their little three-year-old who you see kind of sitting in the lap over there. And then of course, this is Zena and this is Raid, and their two older boys are at school. Uh, during the day, but we just had this great time together, um, strangers meeting one another and welcoming one another. And, you know, try to put yourself in the, in the shoes of this Iraqi family. They have no context for this, right? They have no understanding of why all these people would be there just giving them stuff. And I, I'm sure it's just such a unique experience for them, but it was just beautiful. And, you know, they exchanged phone numbers, um, emails, and I truly believe that this is, this is, the kind of thing that's going to keep happening, right? Because uh, central to uh, at least Raid's value system as an Iraqi is he doesn't want a one-time thing. He wants a relationship with people, right? It's very important for him to gain a relationship with this team. So he was very um, uh, insistent upon knowing their email and phone. He wants to invite them back, and you know, this is a connection now that's not just a one-time thing. So uh, we had a great time together. Here's a, a closer shot of the little girl, Riam, who's so beautiful and was so excited, instantly bonded with all 18 of these girls, was just crawling around in laps and loving it. What they did was they got her uh, a little scooter, like, a, you know, you've seen those little scooters, um, put it together there in their apartment floor, and she was having a blast. Uh, there she is with her scooter. <laughs> So this is our family then. Uh, so my wife Terry and I, Jamie and Peggy Sweeney, and um, Mark Campbell, and soon to be his wife Stacy will be joining our team. And we have a, a Syrian family that just arrived uh, two and a half months ago or so. And this is Muhammad is the father, Mari is the mother, and then Mariam and Kaswara are the, are the two children, seven and six years old. And then Mari is going to have a baby next mm -hmm. month. So, yeah, that's uh, we took them this past week to uh, 
Opryland Hotel. Let them see the, <laughs> the lights. Wow. Yeah. They were uh, overwhelmed. His camera was full, or his phone was full. He said, would you take the pictures for me? So I took them out. Take one here, take one here. <laughs> yep, there's another. Which one is the older child? Uh, Mariam. Mariam is seven and, and Kaswara is six. six. Yeah. <laughs> we took them to an Iraqi restaurant, Al Rasul, over in Noldsville Pike about, uh, about three weeks ago. So, yeah. It was great. It was. <laughs> uh, go ahead. So we've had several opportunities for you guys to ask questions, certainly try to make the class as interactive as possible and ask questions of Dwayne and me. But uh, we've had several panel discussions which you've had that opportunity. Uh, but I wanted to open it up for any remaining questions that you guys might have. Certainly of Dwayne and me as teachers, although we have both admitted that we've been learning this material as we've been going through the class, we've been learning it with you. But maybe more especially, we haven't really had the opportunity for you to ask questions of good neighbor teams. And so he and I represent the two good neighbor teams that we have at the moment. So if you have any questions about um, adopting a family and what all that involves, we'd love to, to entertain those now. Just any you know, practical, logistical, specific questions that, that you might have. Okay. I had coffee with a friend who's been doing a good neighbor team for almost maybe a year, maybe more, probably more. And he and his wife had four to five different families over to his house, mass chaos, that meant, you know, multiple kids, it was raining outside. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that he said about being a good neighbor was that in month one, it was really hard for him to see the fruits of our labor. Mm -hmm. But looking back now over having multiple families, some success, some not su success, you see where you know, you have some families who are just thriving, and you know they're gonna, they're, it's gonna work out. And you know, and there was one family in particular that he, the father, when he first moved here, he was a lawyer, and he kept on looking for a better job, a better job, and he finally had to realize that running a taxi right now was his better job. You know, until and now he's thriving in a much better position. And and my friend David was just sharing how we want to get so focused in on right now that we forget the long game and to give it time and to let God work. And so I, I just I thought that was a very good lesson for us all because we see the news, we see it, and we don't want to get so focused in on the present yeah. that we forget that God's in charge of the future as well. Yeah, yeah. very good point. And we're, we're not to that point yet in terms of being able to, to I mean, I think already we can look back on our families and, and see uh, our, our family, the biggest struggle, the two biggest struggles I'd say we have is, is language and food. Uh, because they are Muslim, uh, on the food side, um, they will eat, eat meat, uh, chicken and beef, of course no, no pork, but it has to be halal. It has to be, it at least has to claim that it's been slaughtered in a particular way. And so we can't just take them to you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. So we have to, have to do something very special there with the food. We've had them over to our house, and we just have vegetarian. I, I cook veggies on the grill, you know. So, uh, but 
that that's been but the bigger struggle I think for us has been the languages because they, they spoke no English or almost no English. Mari the mother, you can tell she reads a little bit better, but conversational English has been very tough. Google Translate has been a lifesaver. <laughs> it's really helped us out a lot. Um, but we're reaching that point of being able to, you know, converse with them more. So it's still a struggle. Muhammad started a job this past week. And I think same thing, it, he realized it's a temporary job. He's going to be helping with washing linens at a, at a hospital. But it's, it's a start. Yeah, I think when Winter was here, you remember the, the girl that trained uh, with World Relief, she reminded us a lot about, and we see this, but these are folks who are coming from war-torn nations, and there's no telling, in terms of which family you're, you're assigned, no telling what they've been through, what they've experienced emotionally and mentally, even physically. And so she stressed and has stressed to us in our training that you're, it's a walking with process, right? You, you obviously can't go into it as kind of a white savior mentality that you're just going to make their lives wonderful all of a sudden. You're just walking with them. And um, they've been through hardship and they've, they, they're in a new place and they don't want to be, necessarily want to be here. We all assume they want to be in America, but what Winter has stressed in the training and what we've seen is that they're told where they're going to live, right? They're, they're assigned and they're resettled to a place, even the city and even the apartment, and we give them the furniture. And uh, we tell them how they can spend their money. So, I mean, there's a lot of humility on their part as professionals, right? Don't forget, it's less than 1%. So America's getting the cream of the crop. So a lot of times these are, these are professional people who have excellent training in their homeland, but they're settling for Tyson chicken jobs down in Shelbyville. Or where, and my, my Raid is in a warehouse for $10 an hour, and he's a talented musician. This guy served with the American military as a translator and uh, was an assistant to, at times, four-star generals. This guy's brilliant. He's a sharp project coordinator and translator for special op-type teams in Iraq. And then he comes over here and he's working for $10 an hour. And um, of course, all his top desire is to provide for his family and be self-sufficient. He doesn't want to impose upon anybody. So it's, it's humbling for him and it's a walking through process for us because we, we, uh, we can't change any of these really circumstances for them. You're just, you just gotta be a friend. That's kind of what they need most. And like your friend, I think when we look back, it'll be really clear that we didn't really do any major thing uh, we didn't we didn't provide any major thing other than just somebody there to kind of reassure you that it's going to work out. Were you going to say something, Susan? I was just wondering how it works with the good neighbor teams. Does it just last for the time that they're in that six to eight months, and then do you yep. just kind of carry on on your own if you you're, want you're to? You're asked to, to <coughs> commit to spending um, at least two to three hours with them per week for six months. Idea being that you're forming a lifetime yeah. relationship, that you're not going to drop them. After, you're not longer, no longer going to be their friend. After <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's the actual commitment that you're agreeing to. Yeah. Yeah. Are they? Um, do they qualify for some of the different? Um, I don't know because of the different status. I'm on, in Colorado, but with um, families can get them resources and things. Or do they qualify? some of the same things that government assistance so insurance how does that work for them and then who walks them through that step because 
that's going to be very difficult. Yeah. And I have to do that with some of my families um, that I work with. And that is a very difficult process. Yeah. And some of I have a language barrier, most of them are Hispanic. Um, and so I know that that's a hard process. How does that work for these yeah. um, refugees? So World Relief has a caseworker assigned to each family. Okay. And so that's probably the, 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 the spearhead, right? This is the person that walks them through those initial 14 days of just getting things kind of straight. Now, ideally uh, speaking, there's a good neighbor team or a friend team of some sort that's kind of volunteer that's sort of filling in a lot of the, the cultural orientation gaps, like learning how to use the supermarket and bus passes and that kind of thing. But the caseworker is really the one that's gonna spearhead their, you know, getting their, um, those legal things kind of straight and health insurance and, and food stamps and a lot of those resources. Yeah. They do qualify for that, and, and then you know, the caseworker certainly spearheading it. But then there's someone at World Relief who specializes yeah. in employment. There's someone else who specializes in helping them to understand the yeah. lease agreement. Yeah. There's someone else who specializes in the government assistance. And with the healthcare component, you know, Siloam, who we talked about, it it is. I, I cannot stress enough how much I was impressed that a family of six just landed from Iraq, can go to Siloam, and in the space of about two or three hours, they knock out every single health yeah. screening, every single everything they need to qualify. Because why? Because Siloam specializes mm -hmm. in doing that, mm -hmm. right? They don't have to go to this specialist or to this place for, for you know, whatever. It's all in one spot, taken care of in two or three hours. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah, really they, nice. Food stamps, WIC, um, Medicaid. But they do have people that walk them through because that's a hard process. It's, yeah. it's not easy. So process. you've got someone that specializes in the process itself and someone there who can translate as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And as the friend family, we don't have the expertise to know. Yeah. So we, I was very relieved when I knew that they were going to have a caseworker and we were just doing more. Extras. But at the same time, there's this long list mm. of things that, that each family has to have done. And so they're asking the, the good, neighbor, good neighbor team if you can assist with any of those. That would obviously help a very strapped organization uh, if you can. So what we wound up being able to help with were things like showing them the, the bus, the public transportation system, or helping them to be able to go get a library card, things, things like that. that was, you know, but we didn't have the expertise in some of those other areas. But. I want to uh, take another couple of questions, but before we run out of time, I know people will begin to, to um, filter out. These orange cards are really important to us. If you could take a minute in the closing minutes here to let us know where you were before and after the class, right? So give us a sense of how much you've moved, and that'll help us as we prepare kind of future trainings for other people. But. Um, the only other thing I want to mention, and then um, be thinking of another question or two for Roger, we have tried to collect any remaining needs from the families. And so I have sort of some angel cards that I've put together. No obligation, don't feel like you have to do this, because I know we're a week away from Christmas. I know a couple of people that I've talked to have already exhausted their gift-giving budget. So there's no pressure on you at all, but some people are looking still for ways to serve and ways to help. So I put some of the needs of our two families together on cards. There are things like diapers and wipes for uh, the Syrian family. There's uh, some other baby needs for them. 
Um, our family is uh, in need of a thing like blender, like a blender, and a, a, a twin size comforter set for the young girl that you saw for her bed. Uh, Zena cuts all of her children's hair to save money, and so a hair cutting set, like a clipper set, would be helpful. So those are the types of things. I've put a suggested price range and some instructions on you know, when to get the gifts back and that kind of thing. Uh, pretty easy way, if it's more than you want to spend, you might could just recruit somebody in your life group or some other friends or relatives. But there's maybe a dozen things. I'd love to get rid of all these this morning and involve you guys in that way. Is that um, before Friday? Ideally by Friday, yes. But they're, they're not in a rush, and they don't celebrate Christmas. So it's not, don't, don't think of it like we think of it, like, oh, I got to get this stuff together. <laughs> But, uh, you know, ideally, I'd love to take it over before the holiday, you know, before the Christmas uh, day. But, you know, if they're not going to care a thing in the world if it comes next Wednesday. So, but the main thing is I'd love to just get the cards out and, and get you guys involved and um, get more people at Otter Creek involved. Uh, last question or two. How has the, um, this is a, an assumption on my part, With the, when I think of a Muslim, I think of men speaking with men and women speaking with women. So how has, how does that kind of play out as you're being good neighbors and when you, when you need to go to deliver the gifts and only the wife is there? Like how does that, practically speaking, how does that play out? I, we, we haven't had uh, really that, that much of an issue there. We seem to be able to talk Carrie with Mohammed and me with, with Mari. Uh, uh, I'm a little bit uh, anxious when she has the baby about uh, exactly what the, the cultural you know, restrictions, limitations might be at that point because I've only seen her when she's in her hajib. She had it off when, when Carrie was there. So, you know, some things like that. But in general, no, it really I think our family is um, the Middle Eastern culture I'm learning is so hospitable that they're as sensitive to making us feel uncomfortable as we are them. Does that make sense? And so he's been very laid back, very understanding that we don't know each other's culture. And so they haven't, they're not easily offended is my point. And so it's really taking the pressure off and you know, we just ask questions of one another and, and learn kind of the protocol. But he's just been very clear that you're, you're not gonna bother us in any way. And you know, I, I'm concerned, like, do I take my shoes off when I enter their house? And I'll always ask this question. He's like, no, just, you know, he'll, he'll always make me feel really comfortable. So I think that's a function of just how, hospita- how, how oriented he is to hospitality, which I wish we were more so in this culture, but good question. I just might mention one of the things that uh, was surprising to me is the spectrum of Islamic belief and culture is as varied as Christian. Um, In fact, I would say a good majority of Muslims are what I would call secular Muslims. And then you've got Sunnis, Sufi, all sorts of different. So it really, you kind of have to feel out each family as far as their comfort level goes. Yeah, I think there's a difference even in our families because um, Raid is very much a, a secular Muslim. It's almost like um, 
you know, people grow up Catholic or they grow up Jewish, it's, it's almost more representative or almost more indicative of their nationality or ethnicity almost. It's not, it, it's not necessarily that they're practicing. And I think he is of that mindset. Now, Zena came from a rather strict Muslim family, and she, you can tell she's a little bit more in tune with that than he is. But as a family, I think they're pretty middle of the road. I, I don't think they see themselves as very strictly Muslim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that gives you an indication that that, that was provided by one of our other team members. But they kind of asked for it, like, yeah. sure, you know, whatever. And um, there's very religious ornaments on there, um, even G- one that's like this big that says Jesus. And there's <laughs> like that volunteer went for it, man. That was, They did make it very clear they were fine celebrating Christmas with us too. Thank you all very much. Uh, I'm going to be at the door with cards. Uh, No obligation, but please do fill out the survey. I will make you do that. Just kidding. (laughs) Thank you all for being here. (laughs) That's right. Punch you out. Thank you.